Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in situ CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them I sent you. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this month, Story Collider is turning 11. According to developmental milestones from the CDC, this means that Story Collider will be becoming more independent, experiencing more peer pressure, and becoming more aware of its body as puberty approaches. Certainly a challenging time in any young nonprofit's life, so listeners, your support is appreciated as always. For the next four weeks, we'll be celebrating this milestone with a series of episodes reflecting back on the past 11 years, and in particular, this most recent and unique year of stories from 2020 to 2021. Today, we're sharing two of our favorite stories from years past. These are both stories that I produced, stories that I was particularly proud of for very different reasons. Our first story today is from Lou Sirico. It was recorded at Union Hall in New York City in 2011, back when Story Collider was only one year old. I have genital herpes. (laughs) In a little glass vial in a laboratory refrigerator. This is what I would tell people when I was in graduate school. (laughs) Ever since I was a kid, I really loved science. When I had the opportunity to become an actual scientist, I jumped at it. So um, I entered a PhD program at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and I entered the virology program. Now, what I like about PhDs is that it's not like other degrees. To get a PhD, you have to, like, plant a flag intellectually. You have to do something no one else did. So I thought that was really cool. That's what, what that's what science is all about. So, and especially with viruses, viruses are really difficult to deal with. They're not technically alive, so you can't kill them. So all you can do is kind of deal with them once the infection has already started. So what you can do is you, you figure out what parts of the virus are important, figure out what they are, how they work, and then you make a little molecular monkey wrench and you just throw it in there. That's basically how it works. 
Uh, this is what my lab did, and our target was herpes simplex virus. Now, as you all know, herpes is a virus that has enough stigma that people don't like talking about it, but it's not so devastating that it's a plot point of next generation Broadway plays. Um, and you know, if you're a scientist and you're studying string theory or cancer or cold fusion, you can beam with pride about the work you do. I, I, I had to like dance around it when people brought it up. And, Inevitably, they'd always say the same thing. Just really, like, herpes? Is there any particular reason why you're studying herpes? Is it because you have herpes? I've heard that a million times. And my friends never had to deal with it. They were studying, you know, uh, human development or immunology or, or, or genetics. You know, a friend of mine studied HIV. And when people found out, they always had that, that hushed reverence. Oh, you know, that's, that's very important work you're doing. <laughs> You know, we really appreciate the work that you're doing, and everyone does, all of humanity does. You know, no one asked him if he had AIDS. Um, so anyway, back to herpes. The, the full inventory of all the components of herpes was discovered decades ago. And soon after that, they figured out which ones were really important. And that's actually pretty easy to do. What you do is you make a herpes virus and you delete a gene. Now, if that virus doesn't replicate, that gene's important. So you figure out what that gene encodes, you, you work it all out, and that's a good target for research. Uh, most of this work was done by a man named Bernard Reutzman, and he's a legend in the herpes community. <laughs> he's been doing this for 50 years, and he runs a bear of a herpes lab at the University of Chicago. Now, our lab was a lot smaller. There were like four people in it. And we couldn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. If he was working on something, we didn't have a shot. So we kind of looked at the less important proteins, kind of like the, you know, the second team. Uh, my project was a protein called ICP-22, and the gene was alpha-22. Uh, it wasn't crucial. Any virus that didn't have ICP-22 ICP would replicate. Um, but it was a low priority and beneath the bigger lab. So, what I would do is I would make herpes virus without ICP-22, and I just made trillions of copies. I had an entire shelf of a freezer with my little genetically engineered monsters, and I would tag them with the fluorescent dye, and I'd infect cells with them. And then I'd take regular herpes and infect those cells, and I'd just watch the, the virus go through the cell and, and compare. And I, when I was doing this after a few months, I realized HSV without ICP-22, it still replicated, but it didn't really do so with the same panache that regular herpes did. So I started collecting data, and I got a little excited. This is me planting my flag here. So I took all these little pictures and everything, and then one day my boss called me into his office, and he told me that Dr. Bernard Reutzman, hallowed be thy name, had decided that ICP-22 might be more important than people thought, and he started assigning researchers to it and throwing resources at it. And with that juggernaut on the case, I didn't have a shot at beating him. So I was scooped. Yeah. And you know, it actually, it, it did throw me into a little bit of a depression. Uh, was it about ICP-22? Not really. It, it, it did dominate my life so much that ICP-22 was my password for pretty much everything. <laughs> it's not anymore, don't try it. Um, but you know, I. The hard part was that I had realized my childhood dream, and it sucked. I didn't like doing research science. 
you know, I, I studied hard to get there. I, I, I amassed five figures of debt to get to that point. I extended my virginity by like three or four years to get there. <laughs> but you could say, Lou, Lou, you're, you're advancing human knowledge. And I'd say, maybe, but it's herpes knowledge. You know, uh, measles kills more people every year than herpes. Uh, chlamydia strikes more fear into the hearts of men than, than herpes. Uh, syphilis took down Al Capone. You know, herpes just makes people reschedule a blind date. I, I can even pinpoint the exact moment my soul died. There's an annual herpes simplex virus research convention that's informally known as Herpes Fest. The day I could say Herpes Fest without cracking a smile was when my soul died. I mean, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. I mean, you, you know, I, I'm going to Herpes Fest. Oh, Christina Aguilera is so talented. I'm going to Herpes Fest. When did they stop calling it Burning Man? You know, I'm going to Herpes Fest. Well, learning about the latest advancement in herpes simplex virus should be very enlightening. That's a dead soul. And really, if I, if I was meant to be a research scientist, I'd just, I'd get back up on that herpes horse and I'd, I'd find another protein or, or another research strategy, or even I would, I would wrestle ICP-22 away from Bernard Reutzman. I'd, I'd overthrow the herpes king of Chicago and take his throne. But I had no desire to do that. You know, he could have ICP-22 as far as I was concerned. This was, this was bigger than herpes. I didn't have excitement about research. I, I didn't feel the challenge anymore. It, it just didn't matter. So I slept walked through a few more months of graduate school before realizing that the job I had been preparing for in the last 20 years was a job I didn't want to do. So I talked to my boss. He seemed upset. I was his first you know, research assistant. He wanted this whole father-son relationship, which was a little weird. But he told me before I make my decision to go and talk to Dr. Palazzi. Now, Dr. Peter Palazzi is the chair of the microbiology department. Still is to this day. He's not just that, though. He's an elder god in the field of microbiology. Okay, he is not a member of the National Academy of Science. He's a member of three National Academies of Science. The United States, Germany, and Austria. He's the Teutonic Patriarch of Influenza. Now, for those of you who don't know about influenza, in 1918, influenza killed 100 million people. Herpes ain't shit. So I walked into his office and I told him that I was leaving and he shook his head. He seemed very disappointed. Uh, you know, I mean, this was four years, 108 credits and no degree. And in his mind, that means uh, I'd be making chalupas for the rest of my life. But, and he gave me this really paternal advice. He said, Lewis, you have a gift and to squander that gift is the greatest sin in the world. And I realized then that's why I was leaving. So, I, you know, even to this day, I look back fondly at ICP-22. I, I feel like, like a parent who had to give his child away to a better home. You know, go with a nice man. He's, he'll give you the research you deserve. He's, he's got a protein core facility and everything. And, you know, other times I think, fuck that B-list virus and the cold sword wrote in on. You know, I, I don't even care. So the first job I landed after that was a lab tech position in a laboratory that studied PMS. So clearly I have a lifelong destiny of researching biological punchlines. 
Um, why did I take this job? I mean, did I really feel a need to eradicate PMS from the world? Not really, no more so than any other man, but the, the, the point is, I took it for the same reason anyone takes menial work. I had a skill set, and I could pay rent with it. So my knowledge of recombinant DNA techniques is no different than typing 80 words a minute or you know, working a French press. Um, but the research strategy was sound. What we would do is we would inject progesterone into control organisms. Now, for the layman, that means trying to induce PMS in male mice. <laughs> it's actually a pretty brilliant strategy, but in practice, it's pretty dicey. What we do is we, I'd hold the mouse in one hand like this, <laughs> and in this hand, I had a syringe full of progesterone. Now, progesterone doesn't dissolve in water, so we use peanut oil. It's, it's cheap and biologically neutral. Now, the problem is Mickey over here would get really antsy, and he'd He'd start doing this. So, you know, one wrong move, I'd run the mouse through, impale my hand, and wind up with a bloodstream full of peanut-flavored girl chemicals. So I lasted about three months there. But my next job was at the Rockefeller University. Now, a lot of people don't even know about the Rockefeller University. A lot of people do, apparently. It's kind of tucked away on the Upper East Side. It's a, it's a graduate program only but it is the, a top-tier biomedical research institution, probably the best in the world. Um, six Nobel Prize winners are on staff right now, and research funding is not a problem because the Rockefellers apparently come for money. <laughs> so there are top, every laboratory has top-tier, cutting-edge research equipment. They have cappuccino machines. They have tea and crumpets at 4 o'clock every day. If you're into that sort of thing, their main lecture hall is a geodesic dome. That's how science is done. So I was there, I, was, I worked in the cell culture facility of a hepatitis C laboratory. So once again, that's me defending the human crotch. Um, but it wasn't inspiring work. But I have to say, just, just being there, I, I really felt like it was important. You know, it's, it's the best scientists in the best laboratories doing important work. They were given the respect they deserved. And that kind of got me excited about doing science again. About a year later, I found out that the largest forensic DNA laboratory in the country was hiring, and that my years of DNA experience, despite not having the PhD, was a huge plus. So I applied for it, I got a job there, and I left the ivory tower for the trenches. And that job, I've been doing it for the past 10 years. It certainly has its own share of headaches, but it's important. Science is important again. And, you know, I'm still not published. I have no desire to get my PhD, but, you know, when a detective tells me, Lou, you know, if it were not for the work you did, we would not have identified, let alone convicted, this serial rapist, yeah, I feel kind of important. Um, and the best part is, I never have to think about herpes ever again, unless I go to Burning Man. Thank you. That was forensic scientist Lou Sirico. Thanks so much, Lou, for sharing that story with us all those years ago. Isn't it wonderful to hear crowd noise again? We're hoping that we get to hear these sounds again in the not-too-distant future. We'll get one step closer to this 
On June 3rd, we'll be holding a very special hybrid show here in New York City at Caveat, the venue owned and operated by my StoryClider co-founder, Ben Lilly, the original host of this exact podcast. The host of this event, comedian Gastor Almonte, as well as all of our storytellers, will be live on stage at the venue while our audience watches on live stream. I've never been so excited to adjust a microphone. This event will be our first annual Proton Prom, an epic celebration of all things science story. Join us to watch some of our favorite Story Collider storytellers take the stage, share your Proton Prom look in our virtual photo booth, and participate in our live donation drive. Proceeds from this event will support our live events as we confront the challenges of reopening this year, as well as our workshop program, which every year helps hundreds of scientists and others develop storytelling skills to improve their science communication. And I think we can all agree we need compelling communication about science now more than ever. So please join us online this June 3rd. Find out more at storycollider.org slash protonprom. Our next story today is from Gisela Rocabato. It was recorded in 2018 when Story Collider was eight years old at our first show in partnership with Sackness in San Antonio, Texas. I grew up in Bolivia. My parents sacrificed a great deal to put my sisters and I through a great education. I liked school, at least some subjects. Um, I was pretty good at, at most subjects, only the ones I liked, of course, but um, I was pretty good at school. My biology teacher took this to the next level. He took us through stories of how the human body worked, how ecosystems work together, and they were fascinating. I loved biology. It was my favorite subject. I even stayed back during recess to talk to him about all these awesome things. I was a nerd, I know. Um, But one of these times during my senior year, I asked him, you know, I want to be a biologist. Perhaps a doctor one day, earn my PhD, cure cancer, something awesome. What are my options? He looked at me straight in the eye with a very serious voice, said, you have to get out of here. You can't do that in Bolivia. Go somewhere else. I was shocked, but not surprised. For a while, Bolivia had been in a political climate that wasn't conducive to science. I don't think it had ever been conducive to science, really. But this wasn't changing anytime soon. And really, if I really wanted to be and do what I wanted to do, I also knew that I needed to get out of there. But I didn't have very many options. My parents did sacrifice everything they had to put us through school. That meant that we had what we needed, but not much else. I wanted to come to the U.S. because this is the land of opportunity. I really wanted to come here and be here and, and have dreams and reach them. But as an international student, that meant I had to pay international tuition. 
I couldn't apply for financial aid. I couldn't work more than a few hours a week and in on, only in certain places. Um, my parents needed to demonstrate they had, I don't know how much at that time, but basically enough to pay international tuition for four or five years and housing and food and books and... I don't know how, how many things. We didn't have that. I didn't have that. That wasn't an option. Luckily for me, I had an older sister who was just passing her U.S. citizenship test. So she said, hey, why don't you come as an immigrant? That will solve all your problems. You come here. <laughs> you can come here. You can go to school, you can work, and do everything that you want. This is the land of opportunity. So I graduated in December 2001, packed my bags, packed my parents and their bags, <laughs> and we came. We came to the U.S. We landed on February 16, 2002. I was so excited. It was cold. It was in Colorado. It was snowing. I'd never seen snow in my life. Um, but it was so exciting. I didn't care. I didn't care it was cold. I didn't care it was snowing. I didn't care my hair turned to icicles when I was outside. Um, I was so excited. Within three months, my parents had received these beautiful white envelopes from Homeland Security with their green cards. Mine didn't come yet. Um, but I was hopefully waiting, you know, that it would take a couple more weeks or maybe a month or so, and that was fine. Um, I knew that after 9-11, um, immigration laws were being revised, new rules and regulations put in place. Um, things were getting a little bit complicated. So waiting for an extra month was okay. Well, a month went by, two, three, four, had they lost my file? I don't know. Had they filed it in that round bin? In their, I, I don't know. Um, so I began to wonder, are they going to give me this beautiful white envelope that I've been waiting for? Um, so I called because my parents taught me that when you want something, you just have to talk to someone and go get it. So I called and asked where my file was. And if somebody is reviewing it and when I was going to get it approved, I needed to go to college. Um, well, I got tossed around between the Chicago office and the L.A. office and the New York office and some other offices and this officer and that officer. Um, I really thought my file was lost, but they clearly had it. Just it was everywhere. Um, and then, on my 19th birthday, after eight months of waiting, one of the attorneys said, they seem to not know whether you're an adult or not. Was 18 an adult? Was 18 years old an adult? Was 21 years old an adult? Nobody knew at that point. It's kind of this limbo situation. 
Um, I was 19, and who knew if I was an adult or not, I guess. <laughs> they didn't. Um, so because it was this ambiguous situation, um, somebody had decided that they were going to tuck my file in some, some corner labeled limbo. Um, and really just leave it there until I was 21 and I was really an adult. And then they were going to just treat my file as this adult sister of a US citizen. And I would have to just wait for a long time. The number 12 and the word years were thrown in the same sentence and I just couldn't handle it. So I took my 19-year-old crushed soul down to the basement and cried. I cried that day, I cried that night, I cried the next day, continued crying the next night, but then I was determined. My parents had taught me that if I wanted something, I had to work for it. So I said, okay, I'm gonna do everything I can. I will leave no stone unturned. So I called immigration. I checked online. I called all of the attorneys I could find in that book. Um, I called them all. I um, called the representatives, the senators, all of them. I went to their offices. I wrote essays. I wrote letters. I had no response. Only, oh yeah, you just wait. It's in limbo, it's fine. It's just sitting there. No worries. It'll get approved. Eventually. Well, some months passed. I kept myself busy. I volunteered every place I could. I took all the random online classes I could find. I learned how to play piano. That was exciting. Uh, nothing to do with biology at this point, but... <laughs> I learned to play the harp, who can say that? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I couldn't play the violin though, that was not a thing that, that I could do. Um, that whole neck thing, I just, I don't know. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't working for me. Um, but I, I kept myself busy, I, I had some friends, and um, although it was kind of a roller coaster situation, some days were good, some days were bad, some weeks were good, some months were bad. A lot of months were bad. At this point, it had been five years. Five years of, oh, you know, playing the piano. That was good. Um, but not much else. At this point, all of my high school classmates were graduating from college. They were going to grad schools or getting awesome jobs, moving on with their lives, getting a second degree. And I was just sitting there. I had been the high school valedictorian and the only one of my friends who had never stepped on a campus, on a college campus, to take a class for credit ever. The dream of becoming this biologist, this doctor, was very, very distant at this point. When I got a phone call one day when I was at a church activity, 
It was a uh, call from home. My father had had a stroke. He was at the hospital. My mom came to pick me up. We went to the hospital. We had no idea how this was going to change our lives. This massive stroke had um, left him with the whole right side of his body paralyzed, fed up the, a reaction where he would go blind, and the doctors didn't know how to stop that. After two months of being in the hospital, uh, going through therapy, trying to reverse the effects of the stroke, he came back home in a wheelchair and couldn't work. So my mom at 65 had to go find a second, a third job to try to keep the house, to try to pay for medical bills. While I just sat there, at this point, I just couldn't take it anymore. I felt useless. I felt like I was a burden to my parents. I couldn't even drive. I couldn't even drive myself anywhere. It was illegal. So I decided that I would think really, really hard about going back home and living my life and trying to help from a distance. But this was a very hard choice if I made it. Why? Because if I step one foot outside of the United States at this point, I could never come back. With an active petition at immigration, if you leave, they retract it. They don't care. They're like, oh, she didn't want it anyways, so we're going to forget about this petition. And the fact that she had waited five years, and then Homeland Security would flag my name because I had overstayed my initial visa and then not allow me entrance again. So I couldn't go, or could I? I wasn't sure what to do. Should I stay and still live in limbo for who knows how long? Should I go and never see my parents again, especially my dad? Well, I had to make a decision. I thought long and hard and started tying up loose ends. I didn't have very many loose ends, but I had to tie them. <laughs> so I, was, um, I had volunteered at uh, one of my friend's offices for a while and decided to go and finish filing some paperwork. And I was filing some paperwork, not very exciting but I was doing it, it was something to do, while well, I thought. And I received this phone call from home. It was my mom. And I pick up the phone, a little worried, a little jittery. I don't know what this, is, this call is about. She says, oh, um, I have an envelope here for you. It's white. It's from Homeland Security. I was shocked. Um, 
Um, what do they want? Um, so I was just thinking, feeling. Was I allowed to think and feel? I wasn't sure. Um, so I just sat there quiet. My mom broke the silence and she said, it looks a whole lot like the one I got six years ago when I got my green card. And I said, well, open it, <laughs> read it. So I heard the longest two seconds of my life ripping paper. It said, welcome to the United States of America. <laughs> Sweeter words were never spoken. I had waited six years for those words. <laughs> And the first thought in my mind, after crying, because I'm a crier, <laughs> was to run home, hold that piece of paper in my hands, run to the first community college, which was only a few blocks away, go to the first open window. <laughs> it, it didn't matter if that lady was frowning or smiling, I didn't care. <laughs> put that down that paper and said, I want to be a biologist. <laughs> Please enroll me in classes for credit this time. Thank you. That was chemist Gisela Rocabato. I am very pleased to share with you that Gisela received her PhD from the University of South Florida last year. I am tearing up a little bit, even now just saying that. I can't even tell you what the feeling was like in San Antonio the night Gisela shared this story. There was not a dry eye in the house. Thank you so much, Gisela. Next week, please join us for an episode featuring two of our favorite stories from our live online shows of the past year. I'll be accompanied by two of the hosts of our online live shows, the great Gastor Almonte and the extraordinary Paula Croxon. For now, the Story Collider is so grateful to Lou and Gisela and all of our storytellers of the past 11 years for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our Interim Executive Director Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. Our theme music is by Ghost. An additional special thanks goes out this month to senior producer Misha Gajewski, who has been filling in for Nissa Greenberg while he's away and has been instrumental in the production of our shows and podcast. Thank you so much, Misha. 
And as always, thank you to all of you for listening and for your support over the past 11 years. We'll be back with more stories next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.